This is, uh, as I said, Loving and Adversity. I'm going to go ahead and get started. My name is Andrew Hill. Um, <clears throat> so, as you, as you think about the title and the topic and the idea around it, I'll just give you my credentials for Loving and Adversity. Um, <clears throat> I've struggled with many situations in my life. As a young man, until <clears throat> um, about the age of 22, I struggled with depression, um, which is very deeply rooted in the conflicts of my family of origin. My father was mentally ill. He was a church planter. <clears throat> Turns out he couldn't keep it together mentally and had some difficulties. Well, I was asked to leave that church, and he left our family. And so that was a real struggle. <clears throat> then later, <clears throat> as a result of that and the childhood I grew up in, there's this idea of legalism. The churches of Christ are really good at <clears throat> historically. Many of us have gotten better. I'm going to grab a piece of gum as I <clears throat> have started to cough just a little bit, if I can... If I can find it, I had one somewhere. Um, let's see, here it is. Yeah. <clears throat> and so when I was a younger man, my, uh, the church I grew up in, the one my dad started, had a tendency towards the King James Version, <clears throat> had a definite stance on clapping that it was of the devil, and it was one step away from having drums, it was um, it was a very legalistic, tight structure. You know, divorce and remarriage was a big deal. And I don't know how they came up with it, but they thought that if you divorce your first, went to your second, you should divorce your second and go back to your first, which is against the Old Testament. So it doesn't really work out for me. And yet I struggled with that until I was about 25, I would say, trying to understand and how to deal with that. And uh, let's see here. So as a young married, um, with multiple levels of difficulty there, um, I was single when I went into preaching, actually. For the first three years, I was a young, single guy, about 25, at, the, at a church in uh, New York. And um, it's just a, an awkward thing in many respects because everybody wanted me to get married, as did I. But the, the difficulty was in New York State, there were no single girls my age, and so they started recommending looking across the nation, and it was interesting. Um, then when I did meet my wife, and she happened to move into the area and went to school, and then um, we, we quickly thereafter moved to China. So the difficulties of acclimating to being a missionary in China with a, you know, a three-year marriage was very interesting. And in China, we learned this idea of churku, uh, which means eating bitterness. And the idea of eating bitterness is purposeful suffering produces success. <laughs> and that you have to struggle to succeed. And I've known that most of my life, but reading that and thinking about that and learning about this concept, it was really um, interesting because when we moved to China... We were promised that we would have a, a nice apartment that was already prepared for us and that we'd move right in and it was all wonderful. Well, <clears throat> they decided after the couple uh, moved out of the apartment the previous school year and we were coming in because we went there to be teachers of English at a small university in a remote village, which was only a million people, um, <laughs> a village. <clears throat> and they decided to move us. And in moving us, we did not have a proper toilet. We had a squatty potty. And my wife was not okay with that. She, was, she, she wanted a normal toilet. Well, this is just one of those things that happens when you move to China and they install a toilet on top of the squatty potty. And then they leave draft holes so that you know the water can drain from the shower because you shower into the squatty potty that's your drain for your shower and so they wanted it somehow to work out that it, they could keep that going and we were like that's not going to work the, the dynamics of the water flow won't permit that and so uh, eating bitterness is a thing that you do when you move to a foreign country and that's just one small example so then as a returning missionary, attempting to re revive a struggling church that I then walked to the end of its life cycle, and uh, doing that while working on a Master's of Divinity, <clears throat> that was a bit of a struggle, a bit of a challenge, and 
if you've ever been in church, which I'm guessing since you're here at Pepperdine, you've been in a church and you've seen some of that in leadership, the struggle of, and the tensions. And now imagine closing a church. The tensions are just exponentially more and not any more fun. So what I learned in all of this is that the only constant is change. Our lives are just again and again about change. And learning to deal with that change is, is a, a good thing. But throughout all of these efforts, going back to my father, he kind of haunted us through our, our lives. And especially me, because being a preacher, it's kind of public knowledge where I am and what I'm doing. And people want to be helpful, so they hand out my phone number. <laughs> <clears throat> and so I spent 10 years, actually, part of the time I was in China, talking to my father once a week and setting boundaries with him and saying, no, we're going to talk for an hour. No, we're not going to talk about that event in the past. And yes, I will hang up on you when you go to places that I've asked you not to go. And so here I am trying to parent my father to a degree, but he's not mentally able. And so after about 10 years of that, I, uh, my daughter was born, and I said, this has to stop. My wife actually said it, and then I went, yes, I agree with you. This is going to eat up so much of my time and energy. And so I disconnected from my father, and he passed away last summer. And so um, another level of this life of being a preacher is at a smaller church, I was, con uh, how do we say this? I was accused of being Satan in front of the entire church. Have you ever had that happen? <laughs> not very fun. You preach a fine sermon, a decently, relatively not terrible sermon, and then somebody comes up and says, by the way, I think you're Satan. Prove that you're not. Say Jesus is Lord. Well, I said Jesus is Lord. My goodness, he is. He's my Lord, my Savior, and I put my whole trust and hope in him. And they went, okay, so you're not Satan, but you're wrong. And I was like, okay, well, thanks. Um, moving on. So I've been told to my face by leadership of a church that we're going to give you enough rope to hang yourself because, well, we don't really want you here. And I went, okay. And there was a few small party of this church that didn't like me for some reason in the leadership, but there was a larger party that was okay with me. And they were all battling before I ever got there. And they battled and battled and continue to battle about everything they can battle about. And so I said, why, thank you. Whatever it is you're trying to instruct me to do that I'm not doing, you need to convince the rest of them. And then come back and talk to me about it. And, and then as a group, you know, you'll all be my boss. But individually, you can't instruct me like this. And I won't hang myself, I don't think. So... Anyways, I've been in meetings where men are lunging across the table practically. You know, screaming and yelling was common. And the ends justify the means. So whatever it takes to get rid of you, whatever it takes to deal with you, the problem, because scapegoating is a common practice in churches, whether we like to admit it or not. Yes. So once again, my name is Andrew Hill, and our class is going to be about thriving in crisis and success. Loving those people even when you don't want to. Even when you just really would love to punch them in the face, but that's not what Jesus calls you to. Um, so doing what must be done to remain sane and healthy, even when you don't want to. How do you muster up the courage for these things? Embracing suffering so you can find victory no matter the situation. Those are kind of just really simple topics that we can all just kind of casually talk about today. <laughs> so as we begin, I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. God, um, you are a God who has seen so much more than I ever have. God, I know there's so many more people, even in this room, that have suffered more than I have and that have um, a, better, a better character and a kinder, gentler spirit. God, and you have, um, you have blessed us all with our own gifts and talents and stories and families. And God, I ask that you would just heal our hearts today. You would help us to see where we hurt and to allow us to give it to you. And I would ask that you would allow us to see where and how we get hung up so that we can give you greater glory. God, let us be humble in your presence. Let us be generous to others. Let us be kind to ourselves. God, give us the gift of insight and reflection. We ask that the words that we speak today will be the words of Jesus Christ, 
and that your spirit will convict us, transform us, and, and give us miraculous power to overcome and the difficulties of this life so that we can be with you even now. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, what about you? <laughs> Have you ever struggled with depression, anxiety, tension, conflict, burnout? Um, you know, if you've been a part of any church community, there, there's, there's a lot of pressures involved with all of that. And if you've been involved with leadership, then you know the inside. You know how the, you know how the uh, pudding gets made. You know the secrets of the jello and gelatin. You, you've seen how the sausage is made. You, you know the dirty workings of, of people and their behaviors and the presentation on Sunday and the behind closed doors. And so maybe as a part of that, you, you're, I don't know, you're, you're looking for some ray of sunshine. Well, I hope I can help you with that today. I'm young in many regards. I'm also older in many regards. I'm kind of in the middle, 44. And uh, so leading any organization, not just a church, you get to see the inner workings of people and how they behave. And you get a, a fast track in, in understanding psychology of organizations and, and such. So, but how you respond in those times of crisis says a lot about your own spiritual well-being. And so my question is, have you returned words for words have you battled it out with people? Have you seen people in meetings come to blows? There was a church not too far from one of the churches I worked at where they actually did one of the preachers grab one of the elders and punched him in the face. I mean, these things happen. We're, we're all people. <laughs> we're just people. We might be saved, but we still struggle with the flesh. So <clears throat> the question is, though, can we learn to turn the other cheek? Can we learn to be kind and generous, even as people want to hang us out to dry? So when we're suddenly caught up in all these struggles, and the struggle of life, the struggle with God, because really the, the idea of our faith is, you know, Israel. His name is struggle, and it's struggling with God. And even as we struggle with all of this, can we do it with a joyful spirit? So one verse comes to mind. You've probably already thought of it. Consider it pure joy. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I would say in times of conflict, crisis, is when we really find out. Are we maturing? Are we living a godly life? So the question remains, how do I learn and grow through the trials? How do I not waste the pain, but use it to make meaningful progress to be more like Jesus? Well, we all have tension in our lives, but is the tension meaningful? Oh, you can't see them, can you really? There's some strings up here. This is a ukulele thing, and there's some strings, and you can hear that. It sounds nice, right? There's a poet, Bengali poet named Tagore, I believe, and he wrote this. I have on my table a violin string. It is free to move. I can turn it this way or that way. It is free, but it cannot sing. And then I take it and fix it in my violin. It is no longer free to move in any direction I choose. It is no longer completely free. But it is, for the first time, free to sing. Now, I've only been learning the ukulele for about a week or two, maybe three. I don't know. <laughs> and um, I, I really don't lead singing. It's been a, it was a painful experience when I was about ten. The whole church I grew up in, all the men, they went south to raise funds and to give reports, and they left me there, a young, newly baptized, I was like 10 and a half maybe, 11 and a half, I don't know, somewhere in there, and they said, you're going to do it all. On a Wednesday night, I led the singing, and I did not get it right. It was torturous. To this day, I am, oh, boy, it's just not good. 
<laughs> if I stand up, my the I can't keep pitch. I, I have multiple pitches. <laughs> but my wife recently asked me to um, begin to uh, learn to play because my, my wife bought a frozen ukulele, one of those blue ones that's plastic that has, you know, Elsa and Anna or Anna or whatever her name is on it. And she said, hey, because I was just messing around with it. She goes, can you sing happy birthday to our daughter? And I went, okay, I'll try. And then I got kind of addicted and I thought, this is fun. This is so much easier than a, than a guitar. I've never really learned to play anything. And, and I don't sing well. I don't feel that I do. And, and then my wife was amazed when I actually did a decent job of it. Because <laughs> she's the musical one. She's played piano, saxophone. She's pretty talented. And, and me, I'm... No, it's really bad. But the idea here is still the same, though. Discipleship is much like that string. When it's free and loose and can do whatever it wants, it doesn't sing. But... This discipleship idea is not imprisoning you in someone else's story. Discipleship is so captivating you, it captivates you by the story of Jesus so that you can be free to sing. And just like our voices, we have to learn and we have to tune and we have to keep going back. Like every day I have to take this little tuner here, hold it, turn it on, and then I have to check. That's a G. That's not a C exactly. It's a little off. It's wrong direction. <laughs> I'm new to this, remember. There's an E, G, C, E, and A. Oh, A's a little sharp. There we go. Isn't it sound good? My dog has fleas. Yeah, my dog has fleas. Right? <laughs> you, You heard how bad that was, so I'm going to put this down now. I'm not going to act like I'm going to play a song. But I was going to, but now I'm just, no. This is is awkward. So, um, but the idea of this is is here, that when we get in tension and stress, it's it's the same as the hot and cold, the, the, the time that just takes for a ukulele or any instrument to get out of tune. There's a constant refinement, constant refinement. And so we have to constantly be learning and growing and training ourselves in every situation to be more and more like Christ. Because that's really what discipleship is about. And today, it's kind of what I want to talk about a bit, because really when you learn to love well, even in pain, even in your own pain and in others' pain, if you can love in those times, then you've truly become a disciple of Jesus. And a good one at that, I would say. And so, um, Leslie Newbigin uh, a friend of mine uh, posted this not too long ago, said he just read this and thought it was wonderful. The gospel in a pluralist society is the book, and the quote is this, Christians are or should be learners to the end of their days. But it is equally important to insist that this, is, that this learning is, like all genuine learning, an exercise which is guided and disciplined by a tradition The tradition which stems from God's decisive acts in Jesus Christ. No learning takes place except within a tradition whose authority is is accepted as guidance for explanation, for exploration. When Christians affirm as they do that Jesus is the way, the true living way by whom we come to the Father, they are not claiming to know everything. Now, if you're like me, when I was growing up, I was taught that we knew it all. But we now say with humility, I don't know everything. They are claiming to be on the way and inviting others to join them as they press forward toward the fullness of truth, toward the day when we shall know as we have been known. And the idea is that even as I grow and even as I mature, I have to remain humble to the end of my days to be a constant, constant learner. So... During the last few years while working on my Masters of Divinity from Lipscomb, I was in a cohort that learned the healthiest mix of spiritual disciplines and such. And it's that kind of stuff that I want to share with you today. So there's going to be this kind of quick download. I'm going to share a number of different ideas with you. And you can research these. They're not too hard to find. And I'll, at the end, I'll show you all my contact info. And if you have more questions and want more specific books or whatever else, I might be able to help you find some of those. But 
I also have a number of friends, you know, those preacher guys, um, who can help you. And if you ask yours, they might know some of these same materials and be able to help you with it. So, but what I'd like you to do is consider scheduling a time in the next few days where you come back and look at these resources, these ideas. If you haven't, if something's new here, especially, and go back through them and think about them and pray about them and, and start setting aside time each day. Because as you know, like for instance, this, if I want to learn this, it's not like I can suddenly pick it up and go, oh, that's easy. I can now just play. I've been, almost every hour I'm at home, my wife gets annoyed with me. She's like, I'm trying to talk to you. And I'm like, it's okay. You can talk. I'm just pushing on strings. And it's really not that hard. And I can listen. She's like, no, attention, direct. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Okay. But if you actually want to learn to play something, you can't do it all in one day. It takes time. It takes a long time to be good at anything. And to be good at loving others, it's going to take a long time as well. So I would encourage you to set aside time each and every day to do that, to prepare your heart, to prepare your mind, to sit in those times of reflective meditation on difficult times you've had, difficult times you will likely have, and and pray about how you're going to compose yourself, the words you're going to use, and going through the materials I'll share with you in just a moment. So, one more verse. Luke chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus had a rhythm to his life, and we should as well. We really need to know what our rhythm is. You have one already. It might not be a very good one. And like I said earlier, I'm not terribly musical. So if I wanted to keep time... I would not be the one playing the drums, and you would not want me to keep it for your church. Like this, like song leading, I'm not good at that. You want somebody who has a consistent, steady beat. And oftentimes, most of us, if we're not careful, we're just like going through life, just, oh, I don't know, a little here, oh, I'll do that, oh, I'll try that. And there's no consistency. What we need to learn is a deeper sense of consistency, that disciplined life that says, no, there's reason for this. Um, If you want to be a great athlete, you you do daily disciplines. You you watch what you eat. You, You watch how you use your body, how you move your body, your posture. All of this, we, we take into the whole account. When you want to be a great runner, they actually do video, you know. They, they put dots on your body, and then they see how you're moving, and they go, oh, look, you're a little this way, a little that way, and then they fix it. And you go back and train and train and train and train. Why is spirituality not a sport? <laughs> Why are we so afraid of the training that comes with being like Jesus? Because Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's a daily discipline. He said, daily, take up your cross and follow me. And yet we say, oh, it's just a relationship with Jesus. It's just a little, just a little something, just a little prayer, just a little this, just a little that. And we often don't take it as seriously as we do our children's soccer, our grandchild's soccer. We think about how much money and effort and energy we pour into our kids and ourselves for hobbies. We're not raising world-class athletes. However, sometimes we would pray and hope that happens so that we're set for the rest of our life and it's the best investment we ever made. But the truth is, you know, there's a very tiny percentage that ever make any money playing any sport. And yet all of us are going to struggle with our soul, our spirit, and our relationships. What if we spent a lot more money, time, effort, and energy on training our children, our grandchildren, and ourselves to be world-class disciples of Jesus? Wouldn't that be an amazing idea? So, as we do that, I want you to go back to the idea of that eating bitterness. Lean into suffering. Lean into suffering as your friend. If you're training as an athlete, that suffering of the daily regimens of two-a-days for football or running and running and running for a track star, I mean, you, you, you welcome that. 
And you welcome it because you see the goal, you see the end result, and you get excited about it. And, you know, when your fingers, as you're starting to learn an instrument that requires strings and you're pushing on them, as your fingers start to get sore and awkward and painful and you're like, ow, that hurts, and blisters sometimes, you go, no, 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 but I'm learning, I'm growing. But we don't want that in our spirituality. We want to just feel good. I've had people tell me as the, you know, I'm the preacher guy and here they're all coming and they're like, look, we just want you to make us feel good. We don't want you to challenge us. I'm sorry, but I think Jesus said, take up your cross. <laughs> Jesus said, it's going to hurt. Like he didn't, he, it wasn't padded. He wasn't held with velvet ropes. There was pain and anguish and suffering. And so we should embrace suffering and use it as training and think of it as training. And when we do that, then we see suffering in a whole new way and we welcome it because we see the joy that it brings us. And we see the progress that we make. So my faith challenges for you today are this. To know God. To experience God. So how many of you are aware of meditative prayer? Okay, so in short, here's what this looks like. You open the scriptures to a story. And it's usually best if it's a story about Jesus because that's who we want to be like. And you look at the time when, say, for instance, he was in the bottom of the boat or in the boat and he's asleep and there's waves all around and, you know, the storm is crazy and Jesus is asleep and disciples are saying, hey, what is going on? Why are you asleep? Do you not see we're going to die? Now you sit in that story and you just read it again and again, two or three times, and then you just go back through it. And you close your eyes, you get in a comfortable position, and if you fall asleep, it's okay, I've done that. I woke up two hours later just after I got my Fitbit, and it said to me, you've been asleep. (laughs) I went, thank you, Jesus, that was wonderful. (laughs) Sometimes that's what we need. But here's the other. You go back to it, and you say, okay, God, I need to sit there again. And what you do in meditative prayer is that you spend a week every day 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. It might be only five at the beginning, but you stretch it out over time to where you can sit with that same story and you ask God, you ask Jesus, you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what it is for you and, and what you need, how, how you need to be more like Jesus in this. And you, you look at it from every angle. It's like one of those movies where they have the 360-degree camera type thing where all of a sudden they're spinning over to this angle and that angle, and you're seeing it through the eyes of every person that's in the scenario, in the situation, and you're seeing it from God's perspective, from the fish's perspective, from everybody's perspective there is to see, and you just keep turning it and turning it, and you sit in that story and you say, God, what are you showing me? Let me see you. Let me see you, Jesus. Let me learn from you and be more like you. And you do this over time. And as you do this, things come to you that you would have never thought because you're spending a lot of time with it. For instance, there's this, uh, there's this discipline of writing where you sit down and you read that same story and you spend just five minutes with it and write out everything you can think of and every idea, every question, every challenge, every anything that goes along with that story and you get involved with it. And then you come back and say, okay, another five minutes, let's try again. Another five minutes, let's try again. I have to think up something new, something different. What's the angle? Where's it coming from? Another five minutes, another five minutes, until you get to 30 minutes. You know, the amazing thing is, there'll be a dry spell in there where maybe for 10 minutes you're like, I can't think of anything. And then you come back to it, and five minutes go by again, and you go, oh, wow. And you write out all these beautiful, amazing ideas because you're giving yourself to the deeper work of connecting with God, connecting with the Spirit, allowing yourself to be open. And you're expecting, this is the other part of it, you have to expect God to show you something. If you don't expect, then you don't have faith. You don't trust. And a doubting person should not expect anything, right? That's another passage from James. So as we look at this, to know God, I, I believe reading your Bible, reading it well, reading it deeply again and again and again, and sometimes that means also just opening up to Matthew and reading the whole thing in one stretch 
And it's not about sucking in knowledge and going deep in the study. It's about seeing the story and how it, how it plays out. As you do that, then your heart is changed because it's like you fall in love again. Because it's the, I don't know about you, but every now and then, my wife and I, we're going through some difficulty, and it's like, I need to retell the story of how we met. I need to retell the story of the difficulties we faced, the struggles we've been through, the moves that we've made, and how we got to where we are today. And go back through that and say, this is where we are. This is who we are. This is how God is shaping us. And sometimes I need to do that for myself. As a preacher, there's times when I start to doubt and question and get really frustrated with God and go, I don't know about you sometimes. I don't even know if you're there. And yet, doubt is a part of faith. And as we go through our lives and we struggle with relationships with ourselves and with one another and and with God, we have to admit that and be honest about it. And so that's a part of this meditative process, that we are honest, truly honest with ourselves. So there's... There's this other bigger picture that all of this plays into called the rule of life. Has anybody heard of the rule of life? Yay! This feels good. (laughs) I'll teach you about that in a minute. We'll come back to it. So the second faith challenge is to know thyself. To really truly know yourself. So how do you know yourself? Well, for me, I told you, I started life in a really awkward way. and, And when I was about 22, I had many suicidal thoughts that I did not want. And they were unhealthy, unholy, and they were just, how can I show the world that, um, that God is, I don't know what the word is, that, uh, that I'm done with God, I'm done with the church, I'm done with school, I'm done with everything, and I'm just sick of it all. And I had some beautiful ways to kill myself that were very inappropriate. <laughs> and I said, this is not healthy and this is not me. This is not my thoughts. This is not good. And so I went and talked to a guy named Bruce McClarty. You might know him as the president of Harding. Back then he was just a lowly preacher at college. <laughs> college church there. And, um, but he, he helped me because he read this book with me, Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. And I don't know if it was the book so much. I was just sitting and talking with him and learning that everybody has the same difficulties I have. Maybe not exactly the same way and exactly the same measures, but here I was trying to do perfect. I was truly trying to perfect my faith and perfect my life and do it all just right because then God would be happy with me. And then my life would make sense. And then I could find the girl of my dreams and get married. And then I would be accepted in society and be normal. As you know, normal's not anything. <laughs> There's the average or whatever that is, but we're all unique and different and, and we all have our own place and our own perspective. But what happened for me with, with talking with Bruce was to come off of that perspective of I have to be perfect, legalistic righteousness, and coming down to it's okay to make mistakes. It, and this is honestly one of the weird learnings that I've had in my life. It's okay to order bad food and then not eat it. It's okay to order bad food and order something else because that was nasty. And it's also okay to eat bad food that I just don't like, as long as it's not going to make me sick. Because it's food. Yeah, I don't like it. It's one meal. I'll get over it. Like, how many times do we struggle with stupid things in our head, and then we say them, and we go, well, that was really, I can't believe I had that thought. Why did I struggle with that? And then what you need to do is look around the room and most everybody else has had similar thoughts that were just as dumb and just as awkward. And everybody in our lives has had some aha moment where they're like, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to think that way anymore. And so what happened for me was I came out of that perfectionist mentality and I started living in grace and it was beautiful. And I loved it. And I learned so much just just not being afraid of making mistakes. Just letting myself be me. And then I learned that everybody else, to some degree or another, has the same struggle. That everybody else is trying to be good. And what does that good mean? And then they have to show themselves grace and forgiveness. And so as you know yourself, it might not be this book. It might be another book. There's a book out there that's going to help you to see this. One of the people that I love right now is uh, Brene Brown. And if you've ever heard her, oh my goodness, she's a fabulous speaker. She researches guilt, shame, and fear. And she says that vulnerability, what I just did, telling you all my life, is just nonsense. (laughs) But it's my life. 
showing you that the, the usual response from people is, wow, he's courageous, he's bold, he, wow. But you can't have courage without vulnerability. You can't. You have to expose some part of yourself to others, and then they go, oh, he's courageous. You know, people that are true leaders have to get out in front and lead, and it's risky. And, and there's always that element, otherwise everyone would do it. And so as you think about, oh, but I don't want to say that, I don't want to share that, I don't want to think that, I don't want to tell anyone. Well, you just have to flip the script and look at everybody else and go, when those guys stand up and they preach, when those girls stand up and they preach, look at how wonderful, how amazing, look at what they do. And then you go, what about me? Can I do that? Well, yes, you can. It's a matter of training and time and discipline. And you can stand up and do the same. And it might not be as good as Don McLaughlin or Rick Ashley. I mean, those guys are they are amazing. But over time, persistence, Anything, I, I do believe anything can be achieved. We can do amazing things. But, you know, we all have our own awesome level, whatever that is. And I'm going to be happy with whatever God gives me. So as we think about that, let's move to the next idea, the Enneagram. I know Christine Kane, I think it was, she made fun of it. <clears throat> Rightly so. Some people have, have turned to, you know, Enneagram and everything else to, to fix themselves. And, but here's the thing. What I learned from the road back to you was that my perfectionism, you see, I'm a seven. I'm an entertainer type person. I'm the, I'm the one I walk into the room and I'm like, hi, I'm here. And everybody's going, hey, can you calm down just a little? <laughs> and, um, well, part of the seven is that they go to one, which is the perfectionist in stress. And when that was revealed to me, I went, that explains my whole life. Holy cow. Because my whole life until I was about 20-something was stress. My father left when I was 10. My brothers and I had a college experience from the time I was 13 to 16. I mean, we did all the partying you could do in a normal college lifetime when I was just still not fully developed. That's a lot of stress. As you add up all those other things and all the multitude of things and you go, oh, stress, stress, stress. I was aiming for perfection because that was normal. That's a part of who I am. That's my understanding. So now I go, I'm getting into stress. What do I need to do? How do I calm down? How do I back away from that? How do I? Because you have to know yourself. And then as you know yourself, you also learn about others. The Enneagram, it just blew my mind when I started realizing, oh, that's why. That's how. And here's um, the Enya app is the quickest, fastest, best way that I know of to get, to get some of this information. And what you want to do is come on and download the Enya app and then click find your type. And you can share this little picture thing and you get it all for free. It's not $1.99. If you want to pay $1.99, $1.50, whatever it is, you can do that. I did it for free. And then after you find your type, there's a whole bunch of little um, descriptions. Like there's the big type. You're a seven. I'm a seven. And then underneath, there's find out the subtypes and then explanations of those and then deeper under that. So there's really like seven times nine or something. I don't know. There's a ton of little specialized parts to it. And as you learn all of that, you go, oh, well, that does reveal a bit more about me. And you start to see who you are and how you function and why you function that way. And the Enneagram, it looks like it's maybe satanic, right? <laughs> but it's not. These are all the relationships. So a seven goes to one in stress, but a seven goes to five in, in health when things are good. And so as a five, I, I think it is that I can sit back and be quiet. I don't have to talk so much. But a seven loves to talk, loves to tell you everything they know, loves to entertain and keep everybody ha -ha, excited about life. Um, but I would say this, learn who you are, understand yourself, and then have grace for yourself. And, and my big idea, the, the biggest idea of today is this, you cannot love others if you cannot love yourself. The greatest command is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're not loving yourself, how in the world can you love your neighbor as yourself? Because you hate yourself, you're going to hate your neighbor. 
Because you're super critical of yourself, you'll be super critical of your neighbor. Because you expect perfection of yourself, you will expect perfection of your neighbor. Until you truly, like, the, another cycle of meditative prayer is to sit in the grace of Jesus. To just sit in his presence and just say, God, I know you love me. John 3.16. Just sit in that for a while and say, God, you love the whole world. That includes me. And thank you for loving me. And repeat that out loud multiple times for like five, ten minutes. I don't know. I, when I did that, it was like this wave of love and a and flood of joy. And ah, oh, I felt so like I've never been loved like that. It was so revealing that I did not accept God's love for me very well. As I started to do that, it went, so that's what that feels like. Oh, that's good. I like that. Now, God, how can I give that to others? How can I show them that they are truly loved? Even when I can't be in relationship with them, how can I love them? Even when they're unhealthy to the point that it's painful to be around them, but I need to love them. How can I give them that same feeling of being accepted and loved? And that's what it means to know yourself. So part of this is, as I was closing that church and as I was writing papers, which I hate to write papers. I absolutely loathe writing papers. Sermons are not papers. It's a whole different thing. Papers require footnotes, and, and they have to be exact, and teachers like to make red ink all over them, and I am crushed because that is not perfect. <laughs> School for me is high stress, which means I want perfection, and there were certain teachers at my school um, that did not believe I should have a 4.0, and it really frustrated me. And one of them is Lee Camp. And if you know him, <laughs> he's an amazing guy. I love him. And as a professor, I hate him, but I love him. But I hate him, but I love him. <laughs> he, he kills GPAs. Um, just, he, is, he writes it in his syllabus. 4.0s. I am suspect of that. My God, really? So anyways, all that to say... How did I motivate myself through all that stress? And how can you motivate yourself? Well, here's one thing. You have to break the cycles of negativity in your life. When you start to get into that ah, rut, you know, like a bad song stuck in your head that you can't get out. One of those, I don't know, I don't want to name any of them. You probably got one spinning. I'm going to stop now. The easiest thing for me is this. I go back and sing, Jesus loves me. Because that's like the earliest foundational, like, healthy, good thing in my life. And as I sing that song, I can wipe out most everything and start over. But when that doesn't work, there's some psychological tricks you can do. One is this. When you're in the middle of a problem and you don't know what to do with it, instead of walking forward and pacing, walk backwards. Begin to walk backwards. And there's something weird about our bodies and our minds and our spirits that are connected. Once you start to walk backwards, it releases you to solve a problem. Just back up and think about it. Take a few steps back and, you, and it changes things. Another is this, that count backwards from 100 by sevens. <laughs> yeah, that's painful. But you can't think about anything else. And it unlocks your brain. Another one is juggling. When you can connect both sides of your brain into a thing that is, it takes some effort and energy, and it's not hard to learn. You can learn to juggle in about 30 minutes, but to get decent so that you can do it for about a minute might take you a week of 15 minutes a day, but you can do it. It's not hard, I promise you. I'll teach you if you want. Another one is to count in different languages, skipping the languages as you count. So like, I know a few languages, numbers. I was a missionary in China, so I can speak Chinese. So sometimes when I'm really blocked, I just go like, one, R. And then I have to go, um, how do you say it in Spanish? A three? Trace? Yeah. And as you do that, and then you think, and you try to skip through, and then count backwards from five. Five, four, three, two, one. And then say, now I'm going to do whatever it is. And you just program yourself that when you get to zero, one, that you're going to do whatever it is to do. And sometimes you just have to set up stupid things that says, yes, I'm doing something. And so you might get down and do some push-ups. You might do some sit-ups. You might do some jumping jacks. You, you might, whatever it is, you exercise. You get your body engaged. As you do that, you overcome the negative cycle of, oh my goodness, I have to write this paper and I'm going to die. You overcome the cycle of, I have to talk to this person and I'm going to die. And you get to a place where you can, you can take on the world because you recognize your weaknesses and you've learned to hijack them and overcome them. And you say, no, no, no. 
This is the power of God. He's planned this into my body. So a part of that is also this, that you cry out to God for power, love, and self-control because we are not gripped by fear. He did not give us a, a, a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, not of our own. And self-control, that's really spirit control. When you really know God, it's not about me controlling and powering up over myself. It's about saying, Jesus, Holy Spirit, take control. That's real self-control. When you give yourself to God and he moves through you. So as you think about that, another one is this. Another one that's back to the other things. Play loud music. I know ACBC is probably not a gospel band in any way, but they have a couple songs that are really powerful. And when you turn them up, I mean, they're just classic rock, and most everybody knows them, like Back in Black, um, Thunderstruck. Some of the lyrics you probably don't agree with, but the, the, the drive of that music, whatever it is for you, find that drive, something that just is like, Whoa, I gotta do something now. I'm just amped up, you know. The kind of music that you'd use to work out or that you'd go up to the pulpit to preach in. I don't know. Think think if there was a you know smackdown for preaching, right? And bum 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 and what what is it that's gonna get you motivated? You're gonna stand up and you will preach like nobody else, or you'll write your paper like nobody else, or you'll you'll do your homework like nobody else. Whatever it is, think about that and listen to that and then just get at it. And I tell you, I had to do this multiple times a day. I actually scheduled on my phone alarms that would go off every hour and a half or so because I was forgetting to drink. Because, you know, your body needs water. You need lots of water. I was forgetting to exercise. I was just so caught up in the work of the church and getting my master's done that I had to hijack my own processes and say, no, when the alarm goes off, I'm going to be Pavlov's dog. I'm going to get up and do whatever I said I was going to do, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it. And as you do that, then that, that allows you to have that reminder that this is not about me. This is about the health of my, my, my family, the health of my church, and the health of my life. This is about me being a healthy person to bless others. This isn't just about me getting a degree. This isn't just about me doing a good job. This is about me being a blessing of God, a conduit of, of God's blessing to others. So <clears throat> here's another weird one. Um, try getting cold showers. I know nobody likes to be cold. I understand. But there's this thing where you can actually hijack your autoimmune, auto-response system to where you can actually start to control the temperature of your body. And you can actually fight off sicknesses as you meditate and as you um, submerge yourself in ice cold water. There's this thing that happens where you overcome your body's normal behaviors and normal auto responses to things. And you can power through where most people would get sick. You can say, no, no, no. And your body just suddenly heats up and you cook the disease. Instead of you getting a fever, you give it a fever and you're healthier. It, it's strange stuff, I know, but just some things to think about. Now, here's another idea. Change your normal foods, your routines, your habits, your patterns, whatever those are. Get into experimenting with your life. It, it's not bad. So, next, know others. As you know yourself, now you can say, I've learned a lot about me. Well, I bet you everybody else has the same or similar struggles. Everybody looks in the mirror and goes, Boy, I'm not as good as I used to was. <laughs> right? I mean, at some point, we all go, man, I'm getting older. Man, my life's changing. My body's changing. Man, I'm awkward. Man, I, I used to be able to. Now I can't. How do I get back to that? I mean, we all do this in one way or another. So know, knowing others is also about living in community. And so a part of this is one of the things I learned that to be healthy as a minister, this was recommended by my... Um, master's teachers, the teachers at Lipscomb, they said you should have a friend. Believe it or not, there's some preachers who don't have one single friend. <laughs> they have nobody they can call and turn to in the middle of the night, and yet everybody says that, you know, well, if I have to, I can call the preacher at least. But the preacher, who does he call? Well, I've got a couple of people I talk with, pray with. A mentor. Somebody who is where you want to be, somebody who is above you, beyond you, better than you, whatever it is, there's somebody that is out there. 
And then the other is to have a mentee, somebody who's under you, who you're helping, who you're training, who you're encouraging. Another one is a coach, somebody who is just really pushing you to be better at life and encouraging you to step up into a greater sense of your whole being, you know, a life coach, you might say. A spiritual director, this one's a new one. It was new to me just a few years ago. The idea is this. This person does not tell you what to do. They sit with you, and they help you listen to God. So they ask you questions like, so what is God saying to you this past week? How have you experienced God? Was it in a walk in the woods? Was it in a conversation with your wife? Was it in holding your children? How did you experience God's love this week? And as you think about that, then you share about that, you talk about it, and then you say, well, how is God challenging you this week? How is God, and it's it just questions to encourage you to explore your relationship with God more is really what I've understood as spiritual director be. And a counselor or a therapist. Here's the thing, how many of you go to a doctor to get checked up once a year? How many of you have gone to a therapist to get a checkup? Okay, a couple. Yeah, but your mental health is incredibly important. We say weekly that we go to the, the spiritual therapist, you might say, the preacher or the, the worship service to get our fix. But that's not quite the same as a spiritual director or a therapist. I would say we all need to do that kind of work at some point, and some point sooner, usually, than later. Um, so, <clears throat> here's the thing. Oftentimes, we fight, and we turn our backs on people, but our inner child is desperately longing for someone to love them. We're desperately longing to be loved and to love. We want community. And to get community, you have to be vulnerable. You have to share your inner thoughts and secrets. I've never known a couple who got together and got married because they were so businesslike. <laughs> Usually it's, tell me your hopes and dreams and fears. Oh, here's mine. And you just get deeper with one another and you reveal yourself to one another. It's the same with God. It's the same with others. We have to begin to think of life in terms of dating people and dating relationships, but not towards marriage, but towards healing and unity and health and wholeness. So the rule of life, oh, before we get to that, boundaries. These are a couple of books I'd recommend if you haven't read Boundaries or Boundaries for Leaders. These are huge in terms of saying, this is a healthy place. This isn't just me saying, you make me feel weird. This is, this is a psychologist and, and you know, some research that says, these are appropriate places in the American culture to say no. <laughs> and you should. All of us need to say no more than we say yes. I, m most all of us. Most all of us say yes way too much. And so, moving on. The rule of life. Th this is one example of a rule of life in a sense. It's the idea of something that takes us to God. So there's prayer, scripture, silence, daily office, study, rest, Sabbath, simplicity, and play. Oftentimes we forget that God is quite playful. I mean, he did make gazelles and badgers and beavers and all kinds of fun furry little creatures that just love to play. Do you think God likes to play? Just maybe. And so there's out the work and activity, a service, a mission, a physical body that we are incorporated. Um, there's in relationships, emotionally healthy, family, community. It's that connectedness of life. And a rule of life looks like this. This is generically the simplest way to do it. Bailey, what is it that you would do to make your best self? You want to be the healthiest and holiest you can be, and you want to have some, some long-range vision of, I will be more and more like Jesus, and however you want to say that. And then you say, what does that take daily? What does it take weekly? What does it take monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, annually, every five to seven years? And you sit down and say, well, three times a week I should probably exercise because, you know... Our body is pretty important, and we know that when you're healthy physically, you're more healthy spiritually. When you're less healthy physically, you're real less healthy spiritually. And so we work into all of these ideas. So some examples of this would be daily exercise of some kind, prayer, Bible reading, possibly journaling. Um, weekly, an hour of quiet, a day of no screens, fasting for a day, a meal, something. Monthly. A day alone 
hiking or some way being quiet with God, before God, in the presence of God, exploring a new place maybe, um, exploring with new people, maybe a new book, maybe a longer fast, more than just a day, maybe three days, quarterly, every three months, maybe a day away from your current church. You go somewhere that you don't have any responsibilities, a different kind of church, a different denomination, a, a different flavor, maybe it's orthodox, I don't know. You're going to go and experience something like you haven't before with an open heart, open mind, and say, God, what will you have me receive today? Annually, I don't know. Quarterly, you might stretch that fast out longer. Annually, you might have a longer fast where, okay, maybe it's 40 days. And some of you are going, no, that's absolutely crazy. Um, maybe it's a fast of a different sort. Maybe you just cut out all meat, all animal products. Maybe you cut out all dairy products. I don't know. Maybe all chocolate goes away. You know, something that, that says this is better more. So as we wrap up here, don't be guessing. Give yourself a blessing. Know yourself. Know God. Know others. Don't guess about it. Don't think, well, maybe this will work. Read, research, learn to hack your spirituality, if you will, to hack your life, to hack your body, to hack your mind, and figure out who you are and why you do what you do and how you do it. This is, this is how you love yourself so that you can love others. You have to love yourself. You have to accept God's love for you so that you can love others. Um, experience does not produce maturity. Evaluated experience produces healthy maturity. When you truly start to think about why and how these things are happening, and then you go back and, you know, after every football game, what do they do? They watch tape. They watch the film. They're going to go back and look. Oh, I missed that. I, I saw this. I saw that. Do you sit down and review your life, not in a way of shaming yourself. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe I said that. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe I did that. But more in the sense of, God, what do I learn from this today? How do I do this? How do I think about this? And then I would say, um, we're at the end of this. Um, how true I am to myself determines how true I am able to be with others. The level of honesty you'll have with yourself is the level of honesty you'll have with others. If you can't say to yourself, no, really, I, I, I can't drink alcohol. No, really, I can't do whatever. For me, that's unhealthy. It's inappropriate. I have to say no. If you can't have that conversation with yourself, then you, you can't have it with others. It won't mean anything because there's no integrity with it. If you recognize in yourself, well, I must be at church every Sunday because that is healthy for me and I, I, I have to get over myself and wake up and go because I know I need that. Then that's honesty. Okay. So I would say as you think about all these things, think about what it would be like to live in such a way to be your best self, your truest self with God. Not in fear, not in shame, not in perfection, but in grace. And then think about how that version of you would love others so much better because you're not so stressed out. You're not so tired. You're not so burnt out. You aren't trying to save the world. Because that's Jesus' job. And, and you're not trying to fix everything and everybody and yourself. Because that's the job of the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, imagine how you'll be so much more free to be grace-oriented towards others and yourself. As you do that, I want to encourage us with a, a prayer. And then, I, I, I'm sorry, I meant to leave a few minutes. I'm a normal preacher. I go a little long. So, um, but I'm, I'm happy to talk with you if you'd like. But let's pray if you would. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, as we continue to pray, we ask that you would help us to see our hearts from your perspective, to see our hands and our bodies and our minds, to see our whole being, our relationships with others. God, let us know what it is to be loved by you. Let us feel that now. Let us carry that to others. 
Let us be honest and kind. God, give us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control so that we can truly live with you and with others in the healthiest, most wonderful ways. In Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 So here's my contact information. If I can help, if you'd like to talk, let me hear from you. And if there's any questions, we have like one minute left, I'm sorry. (laughs) Questions, comments, concerns, anything? Okay, I did wonderful. Thank you.